Welcome to Rocking Our Priors. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, here is a conundrum. In the West, economic development spawned individualism and the spirit of 68. Modernization theorists predicted that growth would deliver liberalism worldwide. Ingelhart and Welser argued that post-industrial societies would champion self-expression. But in fact, this has not transpired. Many prosperous places like Saudi Arabia, Malaysia and South Korea remain quite conservative. India's economic growth has not delivered secularism, but Hindu nationalism. What explains this global cultural divergence? Now, I have a theory which I wish to share with you. It has four parts. So, first, cultural change occurs when bold rebels stick their necks out, champion some radical alternative, and successfully encourage wider defiance. Now, in close-knit, collectivist societies, people care intensely about wider social approval, and they tend to follow the herd. That suppresses individualism. Cultural tightness is much higher in societies where one of the following three conditions is met. If agriculture was extremely labour-intensive and required strong interdependence, like rice or Andean potatoes, or, or if intensive kinship meant that commerce, cooperation and marriages were all rooted in close-knit, endogamous community, like tribe, clan or jati, or if authoritarian governance represses dissent and reinforces despondency. Now, in culturally tight societies with labour-intensive agriculture or strong kinship intensity, then even as families grow richer, they still care for social approval. That suppresses individual resistance. Now, what I'm going to do in this podcast is present empirical evidence in support of all, all those four claims. Um... So stay tuned. Okay, so let me make my first claim. In the West, economic development spawned individualism. In North America and Europe, university enrolment soared over the 20th century. Leaving behind their families, university students enjoyed newfound fraternity and freedoms. Overturning gerontocracy, the 1960s counterculture explored their own ideas of social justice. Protests erupted against the Vietnam War while rock and roll music celebrated a spirit of rebellion and people got loose on recreational drugs. Now that youthful culture, that resistance was enabled by job-creating economic growth, urbanisation, democratisation and universities. Students had the time, fraternity and economic autonomy to think for themselves and organise for alternatives. Now in Zurich, I interviewed a leading Swiss activist, now elderly, for her cohort, 68 marked a new era of secularism, liberal tolerance, individual rights, independent critique, and a growing belief that change was possible through mass mobilisation. Feminist activists shouted, my body, my rights. In consciousness raising groups, marches, and art collectives, they rebelled against patriarchal expectations. They demanded autonomy. If you go to Tate Britain, right now in London, there's an exhibition called Women in Revolt, and all the art is all about women challenging social expectations. There, there are paintings showing that motherhood is tedious and tiring. The Shrew magazine uh, says women don't break down, break out. All the protest banners from the marches were all about female autonomy. Women wanted liberation, contraception, abortion. They wanted to control their bodies. And there are lots of 
photos and paintings demanding autonomy, demanding control and, and reject, rejecting sort of traditional strictures. The lesbians also came out in force, you know, refusing to be silenced or ashamed. They came out of the closet. So through protests and paintings, Western feminists challenged these normative expectations of marriage and motherhood. Rather than putting family first, they demanded autonomy and self-fulfillment. These protests were distinctly individualist. Now, the West was not culturally homogenous. Liberals' demands for gender and racial equality triggered a counter-movement. Across America's Bible Belt, close-knit communities demanded respect for the flag and the cross. They cheered for Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump, who promised to uphold white Christian nationalism. So any theory of individualism must explain that subnational heterogeneity within the U.S., so here we come to Michelle Gelfand's wonderful book, Rule Breakers and Rule Makers. So here's a question. If you walk outside and do something weird, will anyone mind? In India, caste panchayats would certainly express disapproval and punish deviation. Michelle Gelfand calls those cult uh, tight cultures. The rules are known, conformity is widespread, and subversion is abhorred. But head to Sao Paulo, no one will care. Loose cultures, like those, are relatively tolerant and open-minded. There's plenty of scope for self-expression. Now, Professor Michelle Gelfand and her co-authors, they did this international survey, so spanning 33 countries across five continents, and it reveals a spectrum of tight and loose cultures. People in tight cultures show greater self-control, uh, conscientiousness, less littering, lower crime, more synchrony, stronger prejudice against outsiders, low immigration, low ethnic diversity, and more restrictions on public speech. Loose cultures are typically more open, tolerant, creative, and overweight. Now, neither of these cultures is superior. These are just, you know, descriptively different cultures, right? Now, within the US, there's great cultural heterogeneity. Southern states have far higher rates of corporal punishment, executions, and alcohol restrictions. In Texas, in 2011, 28,000 school students were paddled or spanked. Alabama still criminalizes the sale of sex toys. Culturally tight states like these strongly oppose the Equal Rights Amendment. So what explains that variation? Now, norm adherence isn't just a function of self-regulation. Gelfand also emphasizes institutions. Tight cultures tend to have more police per capita and security personnel. In Singapore, there are harsh punishments for littering, drug possession, and even importing chewing gum. In some Chinese classrooms, webcams broadcast children's behaviour, relaying footage to parents and school officials. Pro-sociality can also be enforced through group rituals like singing. A Chinese child's school day may start with carefully coordinated group exercise. That synchronisation promotes unity and cooperation. So... Here is our question. Why do some societies strictly police norms while others turn a blind eye? And why are demands for conformity so much higher in the US South? Now, culturally, cultural tightness is stronger in places where crops were labour intensive. 
Now, our ancestors used to farm a rich variety of crops. Some were very labour-intensive, requiring neighbourly cooperation. So there's this phenomenal paper by Martin Fisbein, uh, Yenhoa Young and uh, Dietrich Volrak, and they find that in US counties with more labour-intensive crops, parents were more likely to give their children names that were common. That may indicate a desire for conformity. By contrast, in areas where farmers could be more self-sufficient, they chose names that were more individualistic. And when exogenous shifts propelled farmers into economic autonomy, they became even more self-expressive. So potatoes required three times the labour as wheat. Cotton needed seven times as much. It was very, very labour-intensive. Now, crops within the US South were exceptionally labour-intensive. There's also significant within-state variation. And the authors exploit that to disentangle the effects of agriculture and institutions. Now, agricultural labour intensity is strongly correlated with individualism. That holds in both the North and the South for both white and black Americans. Now, you may be thinking, well, what about endogeneity? Maybe individualists settled and survived in places where they could farm independently. Well, to examine how farming shaped culture, Fisbane and his colleagues, they consider two agricultural shocks mechanization and also pests. Mechanization affected the amount of labor each crop required. Hand cultivating an acre of wheat required 61 hours. Machines meant it could be done in three, but the precise shifts in labor requirements varied by crop type, so cotton actually remained very, very labor intensive. So in places where mechanization increased crops' labor intensity, names became less individualistic. But after the, so cotton was extremely labour intensive, but after the arrival of the boll weevil insect, that is in the 1890s and 1930s, cotton was decimated and farmers were forced to adopt alternatives. That exogenous shift in labour intensity led to an increase in individualism right across the South. Farmers who adopted low labour intensity crops like wheat or rye became much more individualistic. Now, in counties with high labour intensity in 1900, people are now more likely to search for the term common rather than unique. They're also more likely to prefer team sports, support redistributive policies and vote at high rates. Those are all indicators of strong community bonds. Economic interdependence seems to breed cultural conformity and collectivism. Those are both examples of what Michelle Gelfan calls cultural tightness. So people in tight cultures show more synchrony, stronger prejudice against outsiders, more restrictions on public speech. Outraged by deviance, they tend to impose harsh punishments. As I mentioned, in Alabama, it's illegal to possess, produce or distribute a sex toy. Fitzbane and his colleagues, they don't consider cultural tightness, but um, if you look over at my substack, it's closely correlated with 19th century labour intensity. Okay, so now I'm wondering, I speculate, did agrarian interdependence sow the seeds of cultural tightness worldwide? Globally, Cultural tightness seems more common in places where farming was once extremely labour-intensive and necessarily interdependent. Wet paddy rice required immense coordination. Thomas Talhelm argues that this encouraged East Asian collectivism. Students from rice-grown regions contribute more to public goods 
and harshly punish free riders. Now, to tell you the truth, I was initially sceptical of the rice theory of culture. What about Confucianism and institutions? Now, Fitzbane's paper, Fitzbane and his colleagues' paper, enabled us to disentangle the two, because even under totally different American institutions, agrarian interdependence nurtures conformity. Now, Juno in the Andean region may provide another fertile area of study. This is a freeze-dried potato made by the Quechua and Amira communities in the Andean Altiplano. Now, after harvesting, the potatoes are laid out, frozen overnight, then exposed to intense sunlight. That process is extremely laborious. High demand for labour may help explain why nearly all rural Peruvian women worked. It may also explain why skeletons from 500 CE showed higher wear and tear if they were from Chuno-growing highlands rather than lowland plains. That all that indicates labour intensity. Now, heightened labour intensity helps explain indigenous institutions in Latin America. Highland society traditionally com- comprised Ailu communities with two kinds of reciprocal labor, the prestamanos, prestamanos, which is, means borrowed hands for harvest, and mingo, which means com- communal work like irrigation. Mingo comes from the Quechua word um, minachachuni, asking for help by promising something. Aini is a word for reciprocity. Reciprocity. It means today for you, tomorrow for me. So labour is exchanged by sustained kinship ties of cooperation, fraternity and loyalty. It's baked into their language and culture, all about reciprocity and community. And that is linked to the Chuno labour-intensive freeze-dried potato. Now, today, Peru scores as very collectivist. Homophobia is extremely high, indicating very little tolerance of individual self-expression. Now, geography is not destiny. Over the past two millennia, Eurasia underwent an important cultural divergence. Endogamy solidified in South Asia, Central Asia, the Middle East and North Africa. Around 1600 years ago, upper caste populations in North India became much more endogamous, marrying extended relatives. That's when the powerful Gupta Empire enforced moral strictures under the age of Vedic Brahmanism. So one, India became more endogamous. Two, after Arab armies conquered territories across the Middle East, North Africa and Central Asia, communities gradually converted to Islam. They also adopted Arab cultures like cousin marriage. Parallel cousin marriage is highest in areas once under the caliphate and still Muslim. In Saudi Arabia, it's like 60% cousin marriage. In Western Europe, by contrast, the church promoted nuclear families. So they broke up that intensive kinship. From 300 to 1300 CE, the Roman Catholic Church and Carolingian Empire stamped out cousin marriage and polygamy. English peasants disregarded lineage and rarely exchanged work with extended kin. Young men and women often worked in service until they had saved enough to establish nuclear households. Precocious, precociously deep wage labour markets and urbanisation accelerated exogamy. Now, back then, Europe was still extremely religious, conservative and patriarchal. But people were less orientated around the family. Merchants could develop broader associations and network more widely. Uh, 
Now, in his book, The Weirdest People in the World, Joe Henrik emphasises the Western Church and Protestant Reformation. But that nuclearization may have been enabled by prior geography. Europe mostly grew wheat, which has very low labour intensity. While the wheats growing ancient Greeks were very patriarchal, they were also pretty individualistic. They had a strong culture of philosophical debate, challenging established wisdom, and Olympic competitions were primarily between individuals. Now, why, why, why does kinship intensity matter? It matters because it enables social policing. Strong kinship intensity keeps commerce and cooperation rooted around the family. That enables strong social policing and concern for wider approval. Arabs continue to rely on wasta. Social connections are necessary to access jobs, secure permits, avoid trickery and resolve conflicts. Even middle-class professional Jordanians acquire social insurance from kin. Loyalty is also culturally esteemed. Girls are encouraged to put family first, above narrow self-interest. Caste, meanwhile, remains imperative in India. Cities, especially the smaller ones, are rife with caste-based residential segregation. People remain dependent on close-knit networks, which maintain surveillance, messaging via WhatsApp. I want to quote from Pooja, who is a lecturer from Haryana. She says, Everything is so dependent on social relations, contacts, helping each other, solving problems. Capitalism is so entrenched in social networks. These are built through reciprocation of favours, attending one another's events and buying gifts. We still need that community. That is why we have all these annoying aunties when you are getting harassed. Well, let me quote from Ananya, a professional in Mumbai. She says, in India, there is a lot of fear and anxiety. If you rock the boat, you'll be poor. If you speak out, you'll be an outcast. They don't want to face the consequences of going against the grain. Now, Oyen Ning, who is in a hilarious YouTube uh, Vietnamese immigrant in Germany, she has a great video where she contrasts collectivist Vietnam with more individualistic Germany. And let me quote. She says, in Vietnam, you have to be as thin as possible. If you look like me, a bit chubby, she says, you're going to be called Beo, fat, by everyone. Everyone makes sure to let me know I'm fat. Even people that I don't even know come up to my face and tell me I'm very fat and must stop eating. In Germany, I feel like, and then she has a separate point about uh, motherhood. She says, in Germany, I feel like women don't have to be finding a partner, giving birth to a son, and then devote her time to raising them. I remember the first time a woman told me she wanted to remain child-free, and that conversation blew my mind. I didn't know it was possible, she said. Now I'm 28, and I have a fiancé. Sometimes we talk about whether we should have a child. It's such a reassuring feeling that whatever I choose, it's going to be okay. Now, kinship intensity also seems to encourage religiosity, and I'll suggest three reasons for this. One, cultural tightness may foster a desire for moralising supranational punishment to police bad behaviour. So punitive gods substitute for strong institutions. They preserve order and lower cheating. A couple of papers there that I link on my substack. Two, if close-knit communities are deeply religious, then those sacrosanct teachings may go unquestioned. And there's a nice research showing that uh, a major predictor of whether someone is religious is whether they grew up in a place where there are lots of signals of religiosity. So like in, in Italy, where there's a, a patron saint parade, you believe that everyone else is religious because they're doing it every Friday. Three, members may conform with religious prescriptions to gain respectability. When Pakistani and Malaysian preachers emphasize hell, 
they're implicitly threatening earthly ostracism. So what I'm suggesting is that kinship intensity or cultural tightness encourage religiosity and conservatism through social policing and through a desire for cultural tightness. Now, when people are less dependent on their neighbours' support and approval, they do become much more self-expressive. So Fitzbain and colleagues focus on American farming, but their evidence is consistent with a wider body of evidence on structural transformation and cultural change. Koreans may be culturally tight, but this was really weakened by rapid economic growth. As young adults moved to the cities and earned independent wages, they increasingly dated before marriage, chose their own partners, and then established their own nuclear households. They liberated themselves from parental control, and that shows up in the demographic data. But, but, at the exact same level of wealth, Koreans are far more conformist and collectivist than people in Northwest Europe. So Korea and UK have the same GDP per capita, but if you look on my substack um, on all the composite data, totally different attitudes. Now let me come to Malaysia. Malaysia has prospered economically, but it still remains conservative and extremely religious. Why is that? Is it due to Islam or the influence of Saudi Arabia? Well, the global Muslim community is certainly conservative and Saudi Arabia has indeed exported its norms, but that cannot explain why the Catholic Philippines scores similarly highly for conservatism. If you look at World Value Survey, you'll see that all rice-growing Southeast Asians share similar values. Very few want their children to be imaginative. All are extremely religious. They favour strong leaders. They tend to distrust new people and they feel closest to their hometowns. These societies are culturally tight. They also grow an extremely labour-intensive, interdependent crop, rice. Um, if you look on my substack, I present a, a lot of data all about the points that I just made. Now, in the West, economic development spawned cultural liberalisation and individualism. But, as we've seen... Growth has not had similar effects worldwide. Many prosperous places, Saudi Arabia, Malaysia and South Korea, remain conservative. How can we explain this? Well, I think my, my theory is pretty good. Cultural change occurs when bold rebels stick their necks out, champion some radical alternative and successfully encourage wider defiance. In close-knit collectivist societies, people care intensely about wider social approval and tend to follow the herd. That suppresses individualism. That kind of cultural tightness is much higher in societies either where agriculture was very labour-intensive or where there was strong endogamy and kinship intensity or whether there is authoritarian governance. And all of that means that in those culturally tight societies, then even as families grow richer, they still care for social approval and that suppresses individual resistance. Now, I believe my theory is empirically testable. So <clears throat> if you wanted to test it, this, this is what I would do. I would predict that economic growth will foster more cultural liberalisation in societies that, one, historically reliant on crops with low labour intensity, two, with weak kinship intensity. And you can use World Value Survey data over time, throw all that data in, and $50 says I'm right. Okay, so that is my big new theory about why some rich countries are still very conservative. Thank you.